Well, good morning, young disciples. It's so great to be here. And I brought my house with me. See this? This is actually a conch shell. And I, when I lived in Florida, you could find these still. You'd had to find the right beach to find one. But these are really an amazing shell. It takes about four years for the conch to grow this shell to create a home, a house, to protect the conch from especially octopuses. Octopuses like to eat conchs. And inside, it's really smooth. I'm going to let you see it. See how smooth that is? So it's a really wel welcoming place for the conch to live. And they can live up to 20 years, longer than most dogs live. So that's a long time for this sea creature. But what we're going to be talking about with the adults today is how God designs our world to be the perfect place for all of us to grow and to grow into, in your case, young disciples, people who follow Jesus Christ and who live in the light of his glory. God has a perfect plan, that's what we're going to talk about, for the whole universe, and it comes down to things this small and this precious. But every year in the Caribbean's ocean, 300,000 new conchs get started. That's a lot. That's a big number, and it's all part of just one small part of God's amazing plan. So we've moved here. I've actually moved here this week, and I have a new home. It's a lot bigger than this. It's not as smooth inside, but I hope it can be a place, even though it's temporary, for my wife Carrie and I to live and to get to know you and your families and to be part of this church as your pastor during these years. Would you like to pray with me? Let's pray. God, thank you for your amazing plan that includes every facet of the universe that you have fashioned. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you have gifted us. Thanks for each one of these young disciples. And now as they go to their time uh, of learning or back to their seats with their parents, we pray you would bless them with all the spiritual blessings available in Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can go back to your seats. <clears throat> well, good morning. It's really great to be able to say that and be realize I'll be able to say it next week and the week after and so on uh, as, I, as I begin this time of transitional ministry with you. It's really a joy to, uh, to be here. It's, it's a little bit of a blur. Um, I had to prepare a children's sermon this morning. Fortunately, this was in my temporary apartment at the Presbyterian Missionary Homes. Please don't touch it. I, I got to make sure it gets back. But it's wonderful to be here with you and to 
be here certainly in worship, but hopefully in many other ways as we uh, get to know one another over the next uh, season of your ministry here in Boulder. Today we're going to begin a new series of sermons from the, the letter to the Ephesians that's going to take us right into the middle of September. And so to get started, uh, take a look at the slide behind me. That's called the London Eye. And in 2003, uh, Carrie and I had the privilege of joining with other board members of John Stott Ministries to go to London and celebrate John Stott's 80th birthday. John was a pastor in central London for many years and had a worldwide ministry. And something that Carl and I share is a deep affection for Uncle John, who was a mentor and encourager and discipler of, of both of us in our ministries. But this, this London Eye is fairly new. It was built for the millennium, 2000, and it's one of the most popular tourist attractions in the city today. It dominates the skyline along the River Thames. It's a 450 feet high, it has 32 capsules. Uh, I think if you're from Colorado, think gondolas. Um, and each of these holds 20 people. And when you get on at the bottom, it takes you about 30 minutes to make the entire circle and come back to where you get off. But you get fantastic views of central London. Big Ben, the Westminster Abbey, St. Paul's Cathedral, all of the great historic sites. So taking a ride in the London Eye is a great thing to do if you ever visit that city and it gives you a, a perfect orientation to the entire city of London. Well, Tom Wright is a, was, uh, I met him last when he was working at Westminster Abbey as one of the staff there. Uh, he there later became a bishop. He's a, a, a well-known New Testament scholar, and in his commentary on Ephesians, he says that the London Eye gives us a picture of London in the same way that the letter to the Ephesians gives us a full picture of the Apostle Paul's theology, his understanding of who God is, of who Jesus is, of what the church is. And as we read through Ephesians, we'll get a bird's eye view of one theme after another, of, early, of the earliest Christian reflection about the stunning implications of God's entry into the world in Jesus Christ. We're gonna learn about God, about the world, about Jesus, about the church, about the means of salvation, about daily life as a follower of Christ. We'll talk about relationships, marriage, family, and spiritual warfare. Like someone used to walking around London and seeing all those familiar places, when you come to Ephesians, after reading the other books of the Bible, and especially Paul's letters, you get a new angle on God's comprehensive plan for the world. Ephesians is going to give us the, some of the clearest teaching in all of Scripture about God's plan for God's people, the body of Christ, the church. And as we study this book together, my hope, my prayer, is that it will refresh our vision of what it means to be the people of God in the good hands of our great God. So let's get into it. 
first verse, Paul opens, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul tells us that he's an apostle by the will of God. An apostle literally means, as I'm sure you're aware, sent one. Paul tells us the story of how he was captured by Jesus Christ, by the risen Christ on the road to Damascus in chapter 9 of the book of Acts. I hope you'll reread it this week. Paul is sent by God, and he is speaking with all the authority of Jesus Christ as one of Christ's chosen apostles, as he writes to God's holy people in Ephesus. Now, we need to know a little bit about Ephesus, so let's look at a a map of ancient Ephesus Ephesus in Asia Minor. Now, if if you're a good uh, geographer, you know by looking at that that that's now Turkey, So think Turkey, not Thanksgiving Turkey, but the nation of Turkey. And you'll see there that Ephesus was really at the center uh, of a number of smaller cities. It was a very important commercial center. It uh, It had a port, and it was an influential place for one of the earliest Christian churches to start and to see the gospel spread from there. Ephesus is most famous for the temple uh, that was built to the goddess of Artemis, also known as Diana of Ephesus. Now, this temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a place where people gathered in false worship, but it was a huge draw. And so when the church was planted there, one of the great challenges they had was to be followers of the one true God in a place where the the whole city was oriented around worshiping the goddess Artemis. Ephesians, as you read it, you'll notice it's very different from, say, Galatians or even the book of Romans. It's a much more formal letter. Uh, It's written near the end of Paul's life. He's sitting in a prison cell. He's with Luke and with some other uh, companions, and he probably dictated this to Luke because we can see even in some of the language the influence of Luke, the writer of Luke Acts. But he wants to summarize. He wants to put together near the end of his life a comprehensive understanding of what it means to be part of God's plan. And so he begins with grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now what comes to your mind when you hear that familiar word, blessing? Being blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, we have many blessings living in this country and living in Boulder, experiencing all of the the beauty of this area, all of the material blessings, but Paul is focused here on spiritual blessings. He's going to talk about how we are children of God. We're part of his family, and 
how God is going to share God's gifts with us. He's going to talk about because of the mercy of Jesus that we are now no longer aliens, but citizens of God's eternal kingdom. He's going to talk about the forgiveness of our sins. He's going to talk about abundant life lived in the Holy Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are some of the spiritual blessings that Paul is introducing here. He's also going to talk about how each one of us has been adopted into God's family, a family where we can know and be known, love and be loved, and find a place of service, a place of belonging, a place of hope. We're blessed by being given access to God's power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us by the Spirit to overcome temptation, to give us practical wisdom, to deal with all of the challenges of everyday life. And of course, one of the great spiritual blessings is eternal life, a future, secure future in eternity where there will be no more sorrow or suffering or pain or evil or death. I mentioned my, my mother uh, in my first sermon to you last month, and she died in 2013, and I remember in that last year of her life visiting her as often as I could. Her body and her energy was really leaving her, but her mind and her heart and her spirit were so fully alive. And all she wanted to talk about with me was the blessings that God had given to her. At her memorial service, there were lots of tears, but there was such great joy as we claimed the promises of resurrection, not only of Jesus, but of the, that is the first fruits, the resurrection from the dead. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Next slide. Paul goes on to say, just as he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world, the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless before him, he destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. Just three words, God chose you. God chose me. God chose us. How wonderful it is to be chosen. Get into that on an emotional level. Think back. Perhaps you got one of those fat letters many years ago in some cases from the college or university that you really wanted to go to, and inside you read the words, you have been accepted in the class of, I won't tell you my class because it'll age me. Or maybe you've recently started a new job. I, I can experience that. And you're still being sort of in, in awe and a little bit of shock that you were chosen. Being chosen means that we are accepted and valued. Now, there have been two times in my life where being chosen was a really deep, emotional, spiritual experience. 
I'll tell you the second first. It's when I asked Carrie to marry me. And I remember, I wasn't sure of the answer. I was pretty sure. You want to be pretty sure, but I wasn't 100% sure. And when she said yes, I knew I had been chosen by the woman that I loved. But the most amazing time came when I was a freshman at Cal Berkeley. And I discovered that there was a God who had created me and who had sent his son Jesus Christ to forgive my sins and to cleanse me and to bring me into sonship, to adopt me into God's eternal family. Have you discovered this love of God? Have you experienced the lavishness of God's chosen love for you? Being adopted is an amazing thing. I I can think of several people I've known who've adopted children. A young family in in our Florida church were unable to have more children of their own. And they went through this long process of foster adoption where there's a lot of uncertainty because you don't, you hope, part of you hopes that the, the birth family will be able, be healthy enough to receive the child back, and that's the foster part. But part of you knows there's, that's a very long, big long shot, or they wouldn't be, the child wouldn't be placed with foster parents. But finally, you hear the words of the family court judge that says, you are now the legal adoptive parents of your daughter. It is a great joy, a joy that really only adoptive parents can understand. Many years ago, we were invited to pray for another couple who decided to adopt, foster adopt two young girls, sisters. And as we became part of their prayer team and began to follow their journey, we learned a lot about how difficult it is to adopt. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of resources. Adoption only happens because someone willingly sacrifices to make a child their own. But it's infinitely more true that God loves each one of us sacrificially. He showed us that love by the price he paid to adopt us. Jesus redeemed us on the cross through his own blood. He took our sins upon himself. He paid for our adoption through immense suffering so that we could be part of God's forever family. We don't pay anything to be adopted as children of God. He gives his grace freely and abundantly. We don't earn the gift. We're given this gift to be received with joy. Now, we can really know this as the truth of our lives because Jesus died and rose again. We know it happened. We have over 500 eyewitnesses to his resurrection. It's a fact of history that we can build our lives on. But going back in time to before the creation even began, Paul's going to explain how God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. It was a, we were in God's heart and mind before the beginning of creation. So it's a great gift to know that our assurance of salvation does not depend on our abilities or anything in us. It is entirely a blessing 
from God. Paul wants to explain this, but he, he, this whole first 14 verses of Paul is one sentence. He can't finish it as he piles on superlatives to talk about the amazing love and grace of God. Now, it's easy to read this language that Paul chooses about being destined to be in the family and think, well, what about my freedom? What about my choice? The classic illustration that explains this, at least to my satisfaction, comes from pastor and author A.W. Tozer uh, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. Tozer was writing in the middle of the 20th century, and he, he explains it with this illustration. An ocean liner leaves New York bound for Liverpool. Its destination has been determined by proper authorities. Nothing can change it. On board the liner are scores of passengers. They are not in chains. Neither are their activities determined for them by decree. They eat, sleep, play, lounge about on the deck, read, talk, all together as they please. But all the while, the ocean liner is carrying them steadily onward toward a predetermined port. Both freedom and sovereignty are present here, but they do not contradict. So it is, I believe, with man's freedom and the sovereignty of God. The mighty liner of God's sovereign design keeps its steady course over the sea of history. God chose you, and he chose me. He chose us to be in his eternal family, and you know what? That changes the way we look at each other. Take a look around you. That's what I'm doing, <laughs> looking up in the balcony. You're going to know these people for all of eternity. How does that change the way you look at each other, you treat each other? You're not looking at once a week friends, but at forever brothers and sisters. Now, hopefully, when you think about family, you, you think you have fondness. We were just on a family vacation after not being all together since before the pandemic, and it was such a joy, especially for the grandparents, to be together and to see our adult children just enjoying one another's fellowship. We were all on our best behavior, very forgiving, very patient, very caring, very tolerant. We were very respectful of each other. We apologized to each other because we were kind of bumping into each other. Everybody's used to being on their own. But what a blessing to know that because God chose us to be in his family, not one of us is ever alone. Not one of us has to face a difficulty by themselves. We are to be there for each other in the most challenging times, to rejoice with those who rejoice, of course, but to mourn with those who mourn. And after all this time of not being able to gather together, what a joy it is to come into this sanctuary, a real sanctuary, and to just be reminded of the blessing it is to be part of God's family. Well, let's go on. We've got a couple, few more verses to get through here. Verse 6 and 7. Paul writes, To the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. God pours out his grace upon all who belong to Jesus Christ. Mike Clark reminded me uh, that one of our seminary professors at Fuller, Lou Smeads, in his book, How Can It Be All Right When Everything Is All Wrong? Smeads writes these words. Why do we call grace amazing? Grace is amazing because it works against the grain of common sense. Hard-nosed common sense will tell you that you are too wrong to meet the standards of a holy God. Pardoning grace tells you that it's all right in spite of so much in you that is wrong. Realistic common sense tells us that you are too weak, too harassed, and too human to change for the better. Grace gives you the power to send you on your way to be a better person. Plain common sense may tell you that you are caught in a rut of fate or futility. Grace promises you that you can trust God to have a better tomorrow than anything that you could hope to plan for yourself. See, Paul is making the point in these verses that God purchased our freedom, forgave our sins by the blood of Jesus, and there is no debt left in our account, no penalty to pay for our wrongs. While we were yet sinners, he says in Romans, our Heavenly Father chose us, adopted us, and gave us new life in Christ. I still remember the day when our son and daughter-in-law paid off the last of their student loan debt. They were thrilled. They were so full of joy at being relieved from that burden. They had a big party to celebrate, and they should. That debt had been weighing them down for years. But how much more joy we experience when we realize that we have been freed of the debt that the, our past sins had burdened us with. Let's go to the next slide. All right, this is 1929. This is one of the, the 10 most famous stories in college football of the last century. Georgia Tech was playing my alma mater, Cal Berkeley, in the Rose Bowl for the national championship, and that is a rare thing if you're a Berkeley fan. And in that game, first-team All-American Roy Regals recovered a fumble for the Golden Bears. He picked up the loose ball, he bumped into somebody on his own team, and he lost his sense of where he was on the field. He ran 65 yards to the wrong goal line. Fortunately, one of his own teammates was faster than him, he was a center, and he tackled him just before he scored a touchdown for Georgia Tech. Can you imagine what he felt like? Anyway, at halftime, everybody went into the dressing room, and Regals just put a blanket over his head and just sat in the corner. He put his face in his hands. The coach was a wise man, his name was Nibs Price, and he was trying to figure out, what do I do 
with this, my first team All-American center. He had an inspiration and he gave his halftime speech and he said this, men, the same team that played the first half will start the second. Now the players all got up and started out in the field going, you know, with their chance, but Regals just sat there in the corner. The coach called him, he didn't move. He went over to Roy and he said, didn't you hear me? The same team that played the first half is going to play the second. And Roy looked up at the coach, his cheeks were wet with tears. He said, coach, I can't do it. I've ruined you. I've ruined the university's reputation. I've ruined myself. I can't face that crowd out there. And the coach put his hand on his shoulder and he said, Roy, get up and go on back. The game is only half over. He got up and he played his heart out for the rest of the game. Cal did lose by two points, but what Roy Regals learned that day was that God is the God of second chances. We've all run in the wrong direction with God, but here's the good news. No matter how far you've run, there's still plenty of time to get back in the game. Because of God's gracious love, his forgiving love, his debt-canceling love, you and I are on the team. God has a future and a hope for you and for me. Well, we're going to learn a lot about grace in the weeks to come, about how our faith finds its strong foundation in the grace freely offered to us. Our generous God wants to shower us with his riches. Let's go to the next slide. Those riches, that grace, he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things on earth and in heaven. We're going to begin to unpack that plan as we walk through this letter together. But it's a plan to unite not just Grace Commons, as important as that is. God has a plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. And it, it, he, for some reason, which I still don't understand, he, he's counting on you and me to be part of that plan. So let's do it together. I hope you'll study the letter to the Ephesians. I've already heard from some of you that your small group is reading it. That's great. We would have had a study guide for you here this week, but the Postal Service didn't quite get it here in time. But hopefully by next week, I'll put a picture of the study guide up here, uh, put together by Tom Wright. And we'll be um, having a, a, a one copy per household. So come next week and get your study guide and use it in your own private devotions, or perhaps you're in a common space group or another small group, and maybe you can be convincing that, hey, let's study this together. God chose us. God cleansed us to be holy. God wants to pour out the riches of his grace upon us. We are blessed in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
Gracious and loving God, we thank you. We thank you that we have the great privilege of being in your presence, being filled with your spirit, being cleansed from our sin, not looking back, but looking forward. Lord, help us to do that as we ponder these eternal truths. Bring them home to each one of us by the power of your Holy Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.